Uh, hello, everybody. Uh, this is Course Puritant. Uh, uh, today with us, uh, Dr. Uh, Tenzin Namdu, uh, the doctor of uh, Tibetan medicine and surgery, uh, and the anthropologist, and uh, the author of uh, Tibetan Medicine for You, a path of well-being, better health, and joy. Uh, Tenzin, uh, thank you so much for meeting with us today and talking about uh, Tibetan medicine uh, here on Cospir. My place here, certainly, yeah. Okay, uh, you graduated uh, from Menzi Han, right? Uh, Menzi Kang. Menzi Kang. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> Menzi Kang, yeah. Why did you decide uh, to become a Tibetan medicine doctor? Well, it's, it's a long story, but long of the short, uh, I really wanted to go to a medical school uh, uh, initially. So not really the Tibetan medical school. I wanted to go and study uh, Western medical school, go to the Western medical school and study Western medicine. Uh, but then there were certain limitations at that time in terms of scholarships and uh, resources at that time. And I just happened to got an information that if someone goes to Mendicant to study Tibetan medicine, uh, we get full scholarship. So my initial intention to go to, to uh, study Tibetan medicine wasn't really that oh, I was so uh, passionate about Tibetan medicine, but then during the first year, so Tibetan medicine training is a six year period of time. And so five years of intense training and then a year of uh, uh, internship. So during the first year, I had a pretty bad uh, health condition. Uh, I had a major accident and uh, no one uh, knows what to do. And then it, it was uh, up on the mountain when we, every year during the monsoon, we need to go up to the high mountain to collect herbs and plants. And I slipped through the top of the mountain and I really had a bad accident. And uh, before going to the, Western Medical Hospital because I, I felt that, okay, they most probably would uh, end up doing surgery. And so I tried some Tibetan medical herbs and in two days time, I was completely <laughs> back to uh, healing. And so, so that, was, that was the kind of a very crucial uh, moment for me, a time for me when I really thought that, okay, I am at a place and a situation where there's something really great out there and I need to do my best to study it. And so since then, during the, from the first year of my medical training at Menzikan Tibetan Medical College, I, I completely got myself engrossed in it. And since then I've never looked back. And so it has really served me well, not only in terms of uh, being in a position to help thousands of thousands of people, but personally it has really taught me how to lead a, kind of a better and healthier life. Oh, it's great uh, story. I mean, uh, it's always uh, impressive when uh, your personal uh, experience is connected to what you, uh, to what you decide to become your calling, right? Certainly, yeah, most certainly. And, and it, was, it was much better and forceful motivational factor than someone telling me I, I should really go and study this. It just came from my personal experience. You, you, you are completely right. So what, uh, what is uh, Tibetan medicine? So um, thank you for asking this because uh, the question might 
sound quite simple, uh, but I think it's also very complex and, and difficult to answer a question like this. But I, I usually always try to uh, tell people that uh, when we talk about Tibetan medicine, uh, there are two different ways of looking at it. One thing, uh, the first one is, uh, of course, we look at all these different traditional medical systems like Indian, Chinese, Yunani medicine, and then uh, in most recent time, other than the modern healthcare, uh, modern biomedical system, we have uh, homeopathy. But, uh, and of course, uh, in those period of time, if you go back to 8th, 9th century to 11th, 12th century, there has been lots of interaction between all these different traditional medical systems. Now, the second way of explaining Tibetan medicine is how it is different from these different uh, traditional medical systems, because people tend to think that all these systems are just same and they kind of uh, uh, come, uh, come from the same source and they explain in a different manners. Uh, but the, the important thing to understand is each of these different medical systems, Tibetan medicine, Indian, Chinese medicines, Yunani medicine, they have such a strong influence of the indigenous philosophy and particularly religious belief. And in Tibetan medicine case, the influence and effect of Buddhist psychology and philosophy is so strong that uh, that's what it makes us different from other traditional medical systems. So when we look at the Tibetan medicine, I always try to explain to people that the connection between Tibetan medical practice or theory and Buddhist psychology and philosophy is so inextricably linked that you can't really uh, separate them. And so when you look at the Tibetan medicine, the connection between mind and body is so critical. So, but then people would ask, what do you mean by this mind and body thing? Now, uh, the, the best way to look at it is whenever we try to help someone or uh, someone can help themselves, right, by being healthy and being able to live a very optimal lifestyle is to understand how you can live a healthy and happy life and how you can help other people. In order to do that, you need to understand, is there any problem there or not? And if there's a problem, what could be the cause of problem? So that Tibetan medicine is so connected to Buddhist philosophy and psychology because we, in Tibetan medicine, the theory is that the etiology or the causative factor of all the suffering and illnesses leads to mind. Now, again, uh, the root cause of everything is mind, then it becomes so abstract, right? And then when I try to teach students uh, in the West or in other parts of Europe, how do you, how do you uh, factor that in? How do, can you say that mind is everything? Okay, so mind is a very kind of overarching, uh, a broad spectrum of uh, causative factor we're looking at. But then when we, when we talk about our mind, then we need to talk about what, what, what is a knowledge and what is something that we don't know. And now most of the time, we constantly tend to focus on ourselves. Like in Tibetan medicine, we say that the, the uh, maritpa or dazi, so that's a Tibetan term. But in, if you translate it, it, it says that too much focus on self. So in Tibetan medicine, the primary cause of all the illness or suffering, we say that too much emphasis on self, unable to understand the real self. So now when we are too much focused on self, then we say that that's the main cause then it leads to the afflictive emotion of 
uh, anger, attachment, and obscuration. And so if someone is very much obsessive about certain things, attached to certain things, it can lead to a, a nervous a neurological disorder, uh, insomnia problem, uh, mental-related issue, anxiety, depression. Then if someone is too much anger or, or hatred, then it leads to metabolic disorder. And someone is too much laid back and someone is too much uh, uh, delusionalized, then it can lead to other kinds of illness. So that's why we, we look at the interaction between the mind and body uh, inter, uh, connection based on understanding the cause of illness or disease. And once you are able to understand that, then you design a treatment, then you design an intervention. So I think that that is so focal in terms of Tibetan medicine that in order to understand the causative factor of any illness, you really need to understand the underlying structure of the paradigm, which is the connection between the way we uh, let our mind work on our body and vice versa. So it became a little long answer, but, but, but I think it's so crucial that I tried to, to explain that a little bit in a lengthier way. Uh, thank you. Uh, it's very a strong argument that uh, uh, the mind is the cause of all uh, the diseases of people, right? Right, exactly. Uh, I have a question uh, with, uh, in, in this regard. Uh, what if uh, a person has a, a cancer or AIDS uh, mm -hmm. or uh, some uh, or a disease like this? Uh, what is uh, the reason or what is the cause of this uh, disease by uh, Tibetan medicine? Great question. Uh... Okay, it's uh, so when we talk about again, uh, I'll just quickly kind of go back to the mind okay. cause of everything of mind is because we usually also use the term called uh, when we look at the causative factor or the etiology, distant cause and immediate cause, right? So distant cause is always something we don't see at all. So uh, it's it's almost like behind the curtain, right? Immediate causes are usually anything to do with our respiratory system, metabolism, digestive system, or stability in our body, connective tissue, muscles, then you have, and there are conditions in terms of improper diet and behavior, changes in season, uh, mental uh, uh, factors that comes in, that, that plays into causing a problem. Now, when we talk about the mind, Olga, it's also important to understand that the mind also relates to how we act, how we behave, uh, what kind of a certain attitudes we have. And that's why when we talk about an illness like uh, HIV, AIDS, or any, any other infectious uh, diseases that we see now, H1N1, Ebola, all those things, right? And when, when there's unethical behavior, if people's mind set is not properly aligned with what is ethical and unethical, and uh, when initially people started to have uh, uh, HIV issue or AIDS issue, it's not because that uh, we, the human, human species started, started with that, those illness. It's because of improper waste, waste dumping in, in the uh, river, in the ocean. And the vector of this illness, like here we're looking at certain species of monkeys in certain part of the world, right? And those animals are 
exposed to these uh, these antigens, these virus, right? Because we have contaminated everything, and it's our mindset. And then when those when those virus and 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 antigens are exposed to human, then we get a HIV virus, and then it will lead to AIDS. Uh, in the same way, Ebola, all those things. So we have been, even though we don't see like the the chain of causes that's coming in, which is like way beyond our reach. We have we we were the we were responsible for creating that condition because we were engaged in unethical behavior. Now, if someone get AIDS, suddenly or HIV, you get infected to the virus, right? And do you get that virus from either someone or if you go back again to 1980s when the HIV virus first came in, it came from a very small space uh, population, right? And so that's why once, if I'm already infected with HIV, then the way I take care of my body and my mind, and I try to stay calm and relax, HIV or AIDS is actually, it's, it's really, if you, if you understand it from the mechanism point of view, how it works in our body, it's really nothing other than it's playing with our immune system, right? And so if, if someone has AIDS, if I have AIDS, my body becomes very susceptible to all the infections because my immune system is compromised. But if I try to work with my mind and my body, my immune system can always be elevated and can, can, can be revived. And by doing so, it's almost like taking all this different heavy dose of antiretroviral. That's why, I mean, again, as you have asked, the, the causes for getting illness, disease like AIDS is due to the virus. But again, we have course created the condition due to our uh, uninformed mindset. And so that's why down the road in another 50 years, if we keep on engaging in unethical behavior, we might produce many more other viruses that can lead to other human, uh, human uh, diseases or health conditions. So I think that's, that's how we look at it. We're in a distant and an immediate, uh, immediate level. Uh... Okay, and um, do I understand it right that uh, unethical um, behavior is uh, the real uh, cause uh, for the diseases? And the mind, uh, how, how the mind uh, connects to this, uh, to this, what is the bridge between uh, the mind and this unethical uh, behavior, behavior, emotion, or what's what this? Absolutely. And, and, and Alka, I think these uh, questions are so important and like, yet it's so complex. So what we are trying to engage in the conversation here is really try to disentangle and try to deconstruct a very complex theory. So we are talking about mind and we are talking about unethical behavior and then we are talking about all these different diseases and health conditions, right? Now, the importance of mind here is mind in as you probably might know, and most of your listeners or audience would know, that in Tibetan Indian Buddhist uh, tradition, because most of the Tibetan Buddhism almost came from Indian Nalanda tradition, right? And in that tradition, when we talk about mind, it's mind is it's almost like a space where our thoughts and emotion can exist, right? So it's almost like we look we look at a mirror. So if we look at the mirror. Uh, if the mirror is clean and clear, we can see our image better. If the mirror is not so clean and it's, it's dusty or it has something, then it's hard to see the reality 
of who you are or what you are trying to uh, reflect on the mirror. In the same fashion, if our mind is always uh, contaminated and, and, and covered by the, what in Tibetan medicine is called as the uh, mental poison. Uh, mental poison comes from too much focus on oneself, like narcissistic feeling, right? I want this, I want that, uh, I should be respected, I should get that, I should succeed. And I is always there, and that's why in Tibetan medical tradition or Buddhist tradition, there's one phrase which is so effective. It says, So this is in Tibetan, but if I translate it, it says that the cause of everything, right, whether it's unethical behavior or illness or disease, is uh, the ignorance, ignorance to understand the absence of intrinsic self. So in Tibetan Buddhism or medicine, it says there's no intrinsic self. There's no independent self. Everything is dependent upon others, right? And so when we don't realize that, because if I, if I realize that uh, my existence is dependent upon everything in my surrounding, uh, the fact that I'm able to share what, I, what little I know is based on your, uh, the opportunity you are giving me on this platform. If it's not for you, Olga, and if it's not for this platform, I won't have chance to talk about this. So, so this whole interdependent thing is so important, but most of the time, almost 99% of the time, it's easy to forget that. And once we have that, then everything is self-interest. You want to maximize the profit, you want to be the most successful. You, but then when we realize that if it's not for others, you can't achieve any of those things, then you start to engage in ethical behavior. You, you look out for others, right? So that's why, that's why for instance, if, if I see, if I meet a person, if I see something, if I really want to have, have that person as my friend or my partner or my spouse, and if I want the latest version of iPhone 13 or 14, and if I keep on thinking about that, then I get attached to it. And the more I think about that, the more I get attached to it. Then if I can't get those things, if the person rejected me, then I will, it will lead to any kind of a mental related issue. I, I keep thinking about it. In the same fashion, all this will lead to a behavior which is not ethical because you are constantly doing for yourself interest. And on the long run, this thing could lead to not only on a personal level, uh, not so healthy being, on a, on a family, community level, not so harmonious family, but on a global level, all this, unethical behavior leading to climate change, global warming, uh, uh, polarized community, us versus them, everything is coming up. And so that's why in Tibetan medicine and Buddhist philosophy, it's really more about understanding the underlying structure. And then you, once you try to create that condition more suitable for the community, you also are benefited. So that's why it's so important. It's real complex, but it's so important to, to understand how you can engage in a behavior which is more ethical and beneficial for others. And by doing so, you are serving yourself. So that, that's the very core structure of Tibetan Buddhist medicine.
Okay. Uh, thank you. So it's uh, uh, very impressive. I mean, if uh, we have just one uh, course, I mean, uh, the expanding ego uh, at the cost of everything unethical. Uh, what what is uh, one? I think uh, there should be one uh, treatment or uh, something like this, uh, which can cure everything. The, yeah, Olga. I think uh, so. We are look so far. We are looking more really at the philosophical aspects of this particular medical tradition, right? We are really looking at how someone can change behavior, the way we think, the way, and, and because as we all know that almost all of our behavior, whether we are conscious or not conscious, is being dictated by the way our think, right? Our thought would determine how we act, how we behave. So uh, uh, last 10, 15, 20 minutes that we spend uh, is really a little complex, but I think whoever would uh, look at this or listen to this, it's important to understand that first, we need to understand the philosophical aspects. And, and once we are able to get a little bit of philosophical underlying of this particular tradition, then you would know how you can actually change your mindset, right? How it is important to have a basic understanding that we all are interlinked. If it's not for others that I can't. So that's the, that's the antidote for, for uh, kind of for, treating or curing ego feeling. How but can then, I teach it then? Like okay, exactly, exactly. So, so, so there's a, sometimes we just need to make a very minor adjustment, right? And, and, and so minor adjustment here is looking, changing the way we look at the situation. So turning that focus from yourself to others. So that's so important. And, and, and how you do that, because sometimes it might sound a little counterintuitive, like why you should, because especially in the West, uh, even if you board a plane, it always says like, look, look, uh, look out for yourself. If there's a danger, first put your mask, then care for others, which is important thing, right? You have to do that. Even if you have your child next to you, first you have to put your own uh, air mask. That's important thing, but again, uh, on a on a on a uh, grand scale, on a, on a on a on a much more bigger level, you need we need to understand that if it's not for everything in my environment, if it's not for my mother who carried me for whole thirty seven weeks in her uh, body in our fetus, if it's not for all the nutrition I got from my mother for first two years or three years, all the care and love. I will. I won't even be here. So, so, so those are so important thing uh, on a personal level. And then, if you look at things in in our environment, like a flower, in order for flower to 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 kind of grow and blossom, it need to have everything: light and water and soil and and wind and everything, right? And the flower just can't exist by itself. And having that understanding, not just at the surface level but at the deeper nuance level, at the very deep level, then we would know that there's no way that I can't care for others. And once you change that, once you make that minor adjustment from oneself to others, one would be a lot more confident, more secure, more happy, 
because we are always insecure and not confident because we are always thinking, oh, how I'm going to do, what other would think, if I will be better than that person or this person. But once I not, I'm not even focusing on that. I'm focusing on how Olga would be, how she would do, how she's doing. If you succeed, I am very happy and, and proud of you. Then my sense of lack of confidence, my sense of insecurity, my sense of jealousy, envy, everything will go out of the window. So that's when, that's when uh, one can have lead a uh, much more healthier and, and fulfilling life, I think. Uh, even if someone has a cancer or HIV or any of those illnesses, your mindset makes so much difference. And so, so, that, so that's at the very uh, kind of a philosophical level. And then once this condition leads to pathological issue, like uh, if someone has a heart disease, if I end up, if I'm always angry, if I'm always reactive, if I'm always shouting at my partner and my uh, colleagues, after five years, my blood pressure would go up. And, and, and then I would have autoimmune disorder, skin problem, breathing problem. And, you know, and, and then, and then I have to take treatment, right? Then I have to take herbs or medicines or blood pressure medicine, all the stuff. But these things are on a later stage. We can do a lot of things even before such things get to the state where I need to take, start taking medications. So that's why uh, we are, earlier we were really much talking about the preventive measure and how we can optimize our health and, and well-being. Okay, and let's go to a practical aspect of Tibetan medicine. Yeah. Uh, let's imagine that uh, me or someone else have uh, a disease or a problem, health problem, and uh, how does uh, Tibetan medicine uh, work? So, uh, so usually, let's say uh, person X has a health condition, let's say something like diabetes, right? So mm -hmm. diabetes in today's time has become quite uh, alarmingly common, and um, and and the, the the our lifestyle in today's time is not helping at all, right? Because the lifestyle where it's very stressful, you often get very little time to take care of yourself in terms of relaxing, meditating, or going for a walk, or taking care of your your proper uh, kind of uh, uh, diet. So in that sense, uh, if, I, if I'm seeing a person X, the first thing would be suddenly to understand the person's nature, right? It's so important. In Tibetan medicine, we use a term called Rangshi. In Tibetan, there's a Tibetan term. Rangshi means uh, individual nature or a constitution, right? And, and it's very prevalent in other traditional medical system too. But in Tibetan medicine, it's so emphasized strongly that uh, the person's inherent nature would determine uh, the person's propensity or, or sensitivity for certain mind and body illnesses. So based on that, I would say, because usually if someone is diabetic, we always have uh, different, or if it's an oral medication, medic, uh, different medicine like X and Y, then you prescribe that and you check his or her blood sugar after one week or two weeks. But for uh, intervent medicine, uh, once I understand the person's nature, then I do the pulse diagnosis, uh, urine diagnosis, and I have to be sh I have to be more certain that 
what kind of underlying conditions the person might have other than the diabetic issue. And based on that, I will design a particular diet and lifestyle for that person. And if it's needed, then Tibetan herbal formulations, because usually in Tibetan medicine, in terms of treatment, there are four different stages. The first one is trying to modify a person's diet and behavior, which is again, very similar in very other traditions, medical traditions. And then if the diet or behavior doesn't necessarily is proving to be too effective, then I would uh, introduce a medical intervention in the form of multi-compound Tibetan herbal uh, pills. Uh, sometimes these three combinations might not necessarily work. Then, you, then I need to introduce a certain therapies in the form of, I think as you mentioned earlier, there are different modalities in terms of uh, body work like massage, uh, 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 emetic, where you try to clean up, detox the person's bowel, intestine, uh, then there's a medicinal bath. Uh, so those things. So I need to make sure that which kind of a combination is better for this particular person. And once I'm able to get to a stage where I feel like, okay, this person is responding to, to this regimen very effectively, then I need to continue that treatment for a certain period of time. So, so, so this is at the very kind of practical level. And again, if, I, if I'm seeing like Olga, you for the first time, first consultation, then I will spend at least an hour and a half because first 15, 20 minutes, we would be talking about the same thing we discussed before, how important your mind is. And then once you get that, then you get the personal agency, right? It's not that you come and take the medicine and you don't have anything to say about the treatment because you have to be the equal stakeholder. You have to be the one who also have a same level of personal agency as a doctor or anyone who's taking care of you. That's how it really works together uh, in a much more effective manner. Okay, and for how long does uh, Tibetan medicine uh, treatment last? So, so again, uh, again, since we, I use the condition of diabetes, usually for diabetes, at least to, to get the patients, let's say sometimes the patient in diabetic condition, the patient's insulin is not being produced at all properly. So for those things, it's a different case because you need to have a, uh, the insulin being injected into the person's body. Uh, but on the other hand, there are people whose insulin is being produced in the body, but it's not effectively used or mechanized in the body. So for those things, how you can actually create a condition where the person's own insulin is able to work in a way that it's supposed to work so that it metabolizes whatever we are eating. So for those stages, at least first year and a half or two years of treatment is so crucial. And so the treatment can go a little bit long, a year and a half and two. But usually for typical diabetic patient, when they take a medication, it's almost a life, lifelong treatment in, in the modern uh, biomedical practice. Uh, but in Tibetan medicine, we, first year and a half or two years is very crucial. And once we are able to get an understanding that the person is, uh, blood sugar is much more controlled, they, uh, so for instance, there's a particular blood reading, blood test called SbA1c, which is glycated hemoglobin. I think some of your uh, audience would know that. Uh, and once we see that the 
blood sugar level is also very well maintained as well as the SPA1C is also controlled, then we reduce the treatment and we just focus on diet and lifestyle uh, regimen. And the person has to maintain that diet and lifestyle regimen. So after at least after a year and a half and two years, we get that understanding. And then everything is really focused on diet and lifestyle. And as, as we all, both of us know, for any people, any person, whether we are, have a diabetes or not, diet and life, good diet and lifestyle is important, right? And so, so we try to focus on that. And so that's the time period that we usually look at. Uh, okay, and going back to this uh, mind uh, theory, what causes uh, diabetes? What? <laughs> <laughs> no, this is this is very interesting, Luca. Uh, it's uh, see, so as I said, mentioned earlier, also when we talk about mind as a uh, uh, root cause of everything, again, so many people, like you know, even the doctors or. or uh, healthcare providers in the modern medical setting, we don't see that far. We are always looking at uh, what we find in the blood tests, what we find in the scan, what we find in MRI. Right? We are. It's it, it's so much trouble to go back to mind and and what's the how it is being caused. But it's so important because. So one of the most uh, uh, important uh, contributing factor for someone to have a diabetes or a, uh, uh, poor management of blood glucose in the body is lots of sedentary lifestyle, right? Sedentary means lack of movement, right? And then the other is improper diet, right? So that's, that's the one thing. But now, it's, see, Olga, it's not only improper diet, or just sitting on your couch and, and not going for a walk or exercising all the time. It also has to do with metabolism. It also has to do with digestive system, right? So, let, so that's why most, if, if I'm so self-focused and if, if, if I'm constantly exposing myself to anger, attachment, and then also uh, what we usually say is obscuration. Obscuration means like, you think, I think that I know everything. Uh, I'm very opinionated. And whenever I engage in discussion, I'm the, always the one who I think whatever I say is the correct thing, right? And so for these kind of a personality, there's more chance either to be angry all the time or being unnecessarily self-satisfied, right? Over-satisfied because you, I think that I'm the right all the time. And then that's why those kind of a behavior can have a lasting impact on our digestive system. So our digestive system, uh, see, I mean, these days, uh, when we talk about gastrointestinal problem, right? Gastrointestinal problem is a huge issue now in, in, in modern society. So how many people we meet, like who have a glucose intolerance, uh, who, who need to eat a, a gluten-free diet, uh, who have a Crohn's disease? And, and most of these problems, the, the, the leading cause of this problem is really our mental uh, health. And if we have a very sensitive mind, very reactive, it always stresses our gut. So our gut means the small intestine, which is one of the main components of our digestive system. So when our digestive system slows down or it gets too much acid, like, you know, it, it, it can lead to a condition where digestion really goes down 
and that's when it puts pressure on our certain certain enzymes like insulin and if it goes on for a long time then of course diabetes so that's why blood uh, blood, blood pressure blood sugar heart disease uh, autoimmune disorder uh, sensitive gut or small intestine these all are due to long term mental pressure on our body right and so but it's not only one way traffic it's not only mind to body it's also the other way traffic taking care of our body being being aware of what time we need to get a good exercise you need to go for a walk you need to go for a run eat well it also have a lasting impact on our mind too so our mind and body is not just a one way traffic sometimes people people make it sound like but it's a, it's a it's a bidirectional and mind as much as mind mind would uh, impact our body our body also impacts our mind and so that's why uh, these all different lifestyle chronic health conditions are very much a long term uh, outcome of our uh, uh, improper my, mental uh, health okay thank you and uh, you mentioned several times uh, blood tests and uh, glucose and etc so uh, we know that um, in the in the western tradition our doctors can easily uh, make tests to understand uh, what's going on with the patient so they mm -hmm. read figures and facts uh, uh, to um, to diagnose a disease uh, what do the uh, Tibetan doctors do to uh, to diagnose a disease? What do do they uh, right. yeah. why? Exactly. Yeah, and 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 uh, again, this is this is uh, one of the questions which almost everyone want to know because let's say like you know, if I am checking someone's pulse, right? And so we usually we have three ways of making diagnosis. First is uh, observing, seeing. So. If if I if someone comes to uh, have a consultation with me in the consultation room, uh, it's so important to understand how the person look, how the person walks, sit besides uh, uh, my table, how the person is talking, and those are very minute observations that one need to make because how you are inside would uh, would. Uh, manifests on your outside and the way you talk and the way you present yourself and then uh, also checking a certain uh, abnormal growth on the body if there's any kind of condition that one can see now but the second mode of making diagnosis is touching and in touch the pulse pulse reading is so crucial right and uh, in tibetan medicine uh, one thing we can say is as compared to other ancient traditions like Chinese Indian medicine or Yunani medicine. Pulse reading in Tibetan medicine is, uh, it's almost, we can say that it's way more refined and, and, and more uh, uh, research has been done uh, in those times. And uh, so when we look at the pulse reading, some people, some patient would ask, or some of my friends would ask, can you also check uh, what the blood sugar is? And can you also check the cholesterol, how much cholesterol? No, 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 we can't, we don't know that. And it's not that we are checking the pulse and then it's almost like we are scanning the person's body. It's not exactly like that, but they are very, both at the surface level and the very subtle level, gross and subtle level. 
when we do the pulse reading, we try to understand initially the person's constitutional nature, uh, what's the blueprint of the person, like a D at the DNA level, the person is more hyper, more hypo, if the person's digestive system is strong or weak, and those things, uh, first thing. The second thing is then we try to understand the person's organs. So we look at the heart, lungs, or liver, gallbladder, kidney, urinary bladder, pancreas, all those things. So we use uh, both the radial arteries in our six fingers. And once we have that good grasp, good understanding that of the person's, let's say, small intestine and liver is not functioning well, then, then we try to look for more detailed information, right? And so let's, if I'm checking someone and if I feel like the person's digestive system is quite weak, and at the same time, the, kidney, the renal function, the kidney function is not good, and if it's been for a long period of time, if it's more acute or chronic, then I would certainly advise the person, could you please go and check your blood glucose? Could you go do fasting? And, and there are certain uh, clinics that we will refer the patient to. And then we will look at the report and we will correlate what we think, what, what we hypothesize, and what we re readings that we get. So for the exit reading, we always uh, work with uh, modern technology to correlate, to re reconfirm our, our hypothesis. And, and that, that's how it works. But sometimes uh, the, the, the characteristic of pulse can be so specific that I could suddenly tell the person that, okay, you have a diabetic or you have asthma or you have uh, sudden abnormal growth in your uh, ovaries or uterus. Or, or, so those things... Uh, and again, pulse, pulse reading, Olga, is very much like learning how to play guitar. You can play guitar for whole your life, but you can't, you, you, you can't say you know everything about guitar because every time you get a new rhythm and new notes and the pulse reading is very similar. Lifetime experience, but the more patients that you see, the more pulse that you read, you get a very detailed nuances of, okay, this kind of a rhythm, this kind of a characteristic, and this kind of a health condition could be linked. And then you make those diagnoses. And then the third thing I didn't say is interrogation um, or questioning. And so based on whatever information that you get, a physician would get from observing, seeing, and touching, pulse reading, looking at the urine sample, then in the end, you engage in conversation and discussion, which is very crucial. And you we use this whole, these three different modes of, uh, in interacting with patient to come out with a diagnosis. But again, the patients or the uh, person who come to see me, his or her output is, uh, input is so important. And that's how we make a diagnosis. It's not just like I would see and I'd say, okay, you have this problem. So, the, so, the, so both the interaction from both the sides uh, is very critical. What else do you do you use while uh, your consultation? I mean, uh, what mm -hmm. should I expect from a consultation and uh, meet a doctor to right. better? Yeah. So uh, I, I think again it depends upon uh, Tibetan physician to physician. Uh, but usually the first consultation always lasts from forty-five minutes to an hour. 
which is very, uh, it's almost like abnormal in modern healthcare system because usually it's always 15 minutes and, and, and most of the 15 minutes, the doctor would look at the computer more, more look at the computer than at the person's face or talking to the person. So it's like, you know, typing things and stuff, uh, which is quite unfortunate. And that's why uh, if you know that Olga, uh, there's a NI, uh, National Institute of Health, Complementary and Integrative Health, uh, being since 2012. Earlier, it was National Institute for Complementary and Alternative Medicine. And now they've changed it to Integrative Health. And the whole focus is really to bring in these different medical systems or practices together and how they can complement each other. And uh, for that's why it's it's quite unfortunate that uh, the consultation, which is so crucial, uh, has really become a, some kind of a, a transaction between uh, patient and a physician in modern modern days. Uh, but in a typical Tibetan uh, medical consultation, if you go and if you come and see me, uh, first thing suddenly would be if there's something that we you want to talk to me, like you know, because we usually always say that. Uh, if anyone comes to see a physician, the person has something to say, right? Otherwise, the person won't come to the clinic. Uh, it's not like you are going to uh, have a fun time. Like, it's not like you're going to watch a nice movie or you have an issue, you have a problem. That's why you're coming to, you're going to see the physician. So I uh, ideally, like I would have, if you are coming to see me, Olga, then I would have something you want to talk to me and so so yeah how's everything uh, and so to understand you as a person but you also as a social member of the community so uh, so first five ten minutes would really be focused on you wanting to tell me something about why you are even here right so it's uh, again it's very crucial thing that will build up into then i would say okay olga Let's, uh, let, let me see how your uh, condition is, how your physical, mental condition is. Because in Tibetan medicine, we say everyone has one or other form of illness. We all have disease. Because the fact that we have a mind, since I told you before, mind is the uh, primordial or the root cause of everything, we all have disease. So I check your pulse and uh, I will uh, spend at least five, to six, seven minutes. I'll check each of your uh, uh, wrist and uh, I'll check your pulse. If you have brought your urine sample, then I'll quickly look at your urine sample. And some, I usually like showing it to the person or the client or a patient. Uh, so what we can see and what it is and, and, and what we can make uh, out of uh, the things that we are seeing in his or her urine sample. And then once I get the sense of what's in your pulse, again, that will give me a much bigger picture about uh, who are you as a per who you are as a person, what's your certain susceptibilities, what's your strength, what's your weakness, what's your vulnerability, and then you look. I look at the urine sample. Then I will tell you what I find. Right? I'll tell you. In I mean, I think in former times it doesn't work that way because usually always like you let you you don't necessarily use the pulse reading as some kind of exam these days it has changed people want first to see the pulse and they would ask me tell me what you find 
but so but it also works that way so i will tell you olga that okay i find this and this this and that and there are certain things which is not at all related with what you come in for but i'll say that okay down the road in your health trajectory in five years or ten years time you could be vulnerable to such and such condition you need to uh, keep your eyes on this and these things and then we would have and then you would tell me uh, uh, based on what I told you, then you will tell me uh, these are conditions that you're worried about or you have been experiencing certain things. And then we will design a treatment. I would say, okay, so we need to focus on this and this diet and this and this behavior. And there are certain uh, herbal formulations that we can design for you. But uh, how's, your, how's your work? How's your life? Can you take... Uh, one or two or three different kinds of herbal formulation. Now, so it's a, it's a very teamwork the way both you and I would be an equal stakeholder. And so, so that's, uh, I have been practicing for last, uh, I guess, uh, almost like 21 years. And, and now I realize uh, uh, I've grown so old now because it's 21 years I've been practicing. But Olga, I think it's, I, I've always find, uh, found this so much more effective than just kind of for making decision on my uh, from my side. So uh, my research in last six, five, six years, my research is very much on looking at terminal patients. So I, I see lots of patients with terminal illness, cancer or stroke or heart disease problem, or someone in their late stage of their life. And, and during those times, it's, it's not so easy for the patient to be equal uh, contributor because sometimes they are mentally very beaten up and physically they are not so strong. And then their proxy, their family members comes into a picture. And then you always would know that uh, if I'm seeing a person named John, if he has six different family members, I would know that there's always one or two person who I can rely on to make an important decision. And so that's how, uh, the the contribution of the patient, and if the patient is not so uh, contributing enough, then the patient's proxy, the family members, it's it's so important, and so that's how that's how the Tibetan medical consultation work. It's a very interesting process, and um, uh, you said that um, Tibetan medicine uh, is very close to philosophy and religion, and I can see. Uh, the image of Tara, green Tara, or, uh, on on the wall behind of you. And uh -huh. uh, should I become a Buddhist um, to let uh, Tibetan uh, medicine to uh, treat myself, or it, it's not necessary? Not at all. It's not necessary at all. Okay. <laughs> and, and also, also, Olga, it's so you might find it. Uh, funny and interesting because I even don't know if I'm Buddhist enough. And even though for all these years of uh, trying to learn and, and, and practice uh, a tradition which is so much absorbed in Tibetan Buddhist psychology and philosophy, uh, I'm still a, I was born and raised in a Buddhist community, but as far as uh, someone as a Buddhist practitioner, I'm not confident enough to say that I'm a good Buddhist practitioner. I have to constantly, so as a Buddhist, I don't, I don't like going to temple or 
or going to all these different teachings. But uh, the, the philosophy and psychology of Buddhism uh, is so helpful. So one doesn't need to be Buddhist in order to make best use of Buddhist philosophy and psychology, which is, which is very much focused on how you can uh, have a better control or how you can be more familiarized your, with your own mind. And by being familiarized, by having a better understanding of your mind, how you can control it or how you can kind of play with it, right? Because again, mind uh, kind of precedes all my actions. And those actions could be a good actions or a bad actions. And most of the time, my actions were bad actions, <laughs> and which could lead me to certain unwanted health condition. And, and, and Buddhist philosophy and psychology provides provide that very effective platform i think to to inquire my own uh, uh, anatomy of my mind uh, what kind of a mind it is how you understand mind and then once i understand mind then i can play with it because without understanding my mind then there's no way i could play with it it's it's like it's almost like working on our phone right or like as long as i don't understand how the phone works it's so hard to uh, uh, work on my phone. I I can only text message or make a call. I don't know all these other apps. So, but this philosophy and psychology gives a really uh, helpful av avenue to understand and control your mind and thereby uh, control our sense of well-being and health. So one doesn't need to be Buddhist. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, and I have the last question. Uh, sure. If, if you had a choice to send a message to humankind, what would you write or say? Mm -hmm. I, uh, I mean, I think it's, I always see that one of the, uh, and based on not only my practice, but also my last few years of research, my, especially my, uh, uh, my dissertation research is so much on, uh, looking at how we, we can care for people who seems to be most vulnerable when they're dying, right? But for, for the human life, there are two most vulnerable uh, times, I think. One is when we are being born. When we are born, we are at the mercy of others, right? Then when we are dying, it's the same thing. And I've seen that since my research is so much focused on people who were so vulnerable and so weak that they can't say anything. Everyone is making decisions for that person, right? And I've seen that people who have led a good life, people who have helped others, people who have uh, spent their life um, engaged in uh, an ethical behavior, they are the ones who have most control at the time of death. So I think uh, the fact that we all have to die and and also the fact that we all seem to be scared of death. And uh, one thing that we can do is engage in ethical behavior and think for others. And that will uh, make you much more stronger and confident when you are most vulnerable, when you're dying, when you're living behind everything that you have earned. Like people who have billions of dollars, people who have all the thing in their world, when they're dying, they can't take anything with them other than their peaceful mind and, and confidence. And I think that's, that's 
when it comes uh, very helpful is not the uh, money in the account or properties that they have, but it's the uh, quality of life and, and sense of attitude uh, that they had when they were alive and that they can take with them when they are close to dying. And I think that's why it's so important to think for others, help others, because at the end of the day, it's for your own benefit. It's for not, not for others. So I think that's so important, I think. It's not a simple thing that I can say, a uh, simple message, but I'm just relating that to my research and work. Thank you. Uh, thank you for such uh, an inspiring and uh, very interesting conversation. Likewise, yeah, you, Olga, you asked some very helpful, interesting questions, so I was able to say a bit from my side. Thank you. Thank you.